This is the Men of Athens podcast, making the unknown God known to a very religious world. For more information, check out menofathens.com. Welcome to the Men of Athens podcast. I am Thomas, Thomas Lawson. Lawson. Oh, you beat me to the punch. Who are you? Who are you? Well, you are Thomas Lawson and I am, I am <laughs> Dave Barry. You are Dave Barry. Dave, I had a killer burger last night. You, uh, today's Wednesday. Yeah. At the time of recording. I had one on Monday. Okay. Which one did you have? I had the one that tastes like all the other same killer oh. burgers out there. Here's looking at you, Jen. They yeah. all taste the same. I, I introduced some Canadian friends to uh, Killer Burger. They all agreed with me because they have had Five Guys. Okay. Uh huh. They all agreed Killer Burger was better. You you just don't have the palate for it. Well, listen, I am not denying the goodness of a Killer Burger. And it is a killer burger. Man, that, that's really killer. Good. It is. We did have one listener comment on Twitter. I posted the uh, the episode on Twitter and they came back and they're like, they, 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 they're not sure if they can trust uh, the spiritual judgment of a person <laughs> who would say that Five Guys is better than Killer Burger. If you're, if you're not in the Portland area, I, I encourage you to uh, come down here on vacation Take your time and, and try Killer Burger while you're down here. If you ever make well, if you ever make it down to Portland, anyway. so it's a good burger, but the seasoning so overwhelms the taste of the patty that it becomes the dominant flavor. And I've now had three or four different burgers there, and they all taste more similar than dissimilar. Even the one that had the blue cheese on it, blue cheese is a potent taste still the seasoning so it's good it's good don't get me wrong hey i gotta double we're gonna work on your palate all right all right (laughs) it needs maturing all right on to serious things i don't know burger is a pretty serious thing to me i I, to some people yeah apparently and both of us this is kind of a hard conversation to have because both of us are fasting today yeah Uh, we've had a uh elders at our church decided to fast over pray over some issues and so yeah what a great way to start this conversation talking about thank you for bringing that up yep (laughs) uh set the tone for the rest of the conversation um dave um the bible big issue today love it uh this this is this is potentially this could potentially be like what the podcast is about all the time uh discussing the issue of of biblical inerrancy biblical authority uh, asking the question today, can we trust the Bible? Okay, so first and foremost, I'm, I'm thinking, <clears throat> you know, we're addressing Christians here in, in one sense. Can we as believers mm-hmm. trust the Bible? But also, does that apply to everyone? Do, does, the, does the whole world being called to repent and follow Christ, um, should the whole world believe the Bible? Can they trust the Bible. Massive subject here. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to cover it all in one short podcast episode, no. but hopefully we can kind of do a summary of, of some different thoughts out there, some a summary of some different reasons, and uh, look at Scripture itself. So can we trust the Bible, Dave? Yeah. Yes. Yes, we can. Yeah. All right. Wrap it up. All right. Well, thanks, for, thank thanks, you thanks for, for tuning in, everybody. Appreciate having you. <laughs> 
somehow I I think people might find that unsatisfying. Yeah, you know, this is a question that's pretty near and dear to my heart. Uh, I became a Christian, began to follow Jesus when I was 21. And there's there's a field out there called apologetics. Apologetics is an old word that means to give a defense. So one of the things as I as a young Christian, I, I wanted to read about defending the faith, understanding why I believe what I believed. Um, yes, the Lord gave me a new heart, filled me with his spirit. I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I knew God's word was God's word and had that internal testimony and power of a changed life. But I knew that that personal testimony wasn't convincing. Um, uh, a, a Mormon missionary will say the same thing yeah. as an appeal to their reason. So the, bur- the burning, burning the, bosom, the burning bosom. Yeah, yeah, the idea. Read the Book of Mormon, and yeah. you'll just get this sense, this feel that that it's true. So I don't want to downplay the reality of the power of a changed life by any means, and and that's why. Um, you know, people who are generally converted love scripture. However, however, for me, I wanted to learn more about the Bible. In other words, when we talk about is the Bible trustworthy, I think the first question that we need to address is, can we even trust the document that we have in our laps? Yeah. This book, did is Jesus just a legend. Did sneaky Christians sneak in and change the Bible to fit some agenda they had at some point in history? And so there's a field of study that addresses that question, and it's called textual transmission. How did the autographs, which means first writings, how did Matthew writing Matthew go from Matthew's desk to our desk right here in front of us. Mm -hmm. And so that's textual transmission, which is different from translation. Translation is just taking a text from one language to a different language. So we have various English translations. So transmission is looking, what's the family tree? Yeah. And, And that's what scholars have done. So prior to the invention of the printing press, if you had a Bible, it was handwritten, and which meant that it wore out and degraded and, and, uh, books were precious. So there were fields where people, their livelihood, there are families who were scribes. Their job was to to write copies professionally of documents, and they made their living on doing that. And there's a lot of information out there. But what's amazing is that we have access to, we, we do not have access to the autographs. We don't have access to the original writings, but we have access to very early copies of those writings. And what's amazing is when we look at the writings of scripture, not only were they copied, but they were also translated into Greek and and other Coptic into other languages. And so what scholars can do is they can go back and, and identify when manuscripts were written by hand, that's why it's called a manuscript. Mm-hmm. When it was written by hand, they can identify based on the, the font, right? The script that's used, the material that's used. But they're also able to identify family lineage of different manuscript families. So there's that game that kids like to play telephone. 
I whisper something into your ear pretty quickly. You whisper it into someone else's ear. And the fun of the game is to f figure out what I said first and how it, how it changed that was misheard mm. through different people's ears. That's not what happens in Bible translation or, or, or transmission, rather. Yes, it's true that there can be scribal errors. Slip of the pen. Uh, some uh, Hebrew letters are very difficult to distinguish, save for a little stroke of a pen. Um, and, and so what they can do is they can look at, at the history of manuscripts and they can say, oh, we see there was a spelling error here that originated in Egypt. And we can see how then it was copied among this family tree. And we can see this family tree was copied this way. Uh, this spelling change happened to update uh, spelling the name of Jesus or something along those lines. And then scholars can compare those different families and, and work their way back. So not only do we have these very old manuscripts that uh, are close, uh, that are in the first century and, and many in the second century, we have those, but then we, we can also compare and contrast these different translated mm -hmm. uh, textual families. So I have in front of me here a, a book. It's an updated book published in 2017 called Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell and his son, Sean McDowell. It is a sizable book. It's a tome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's not, a, not an easy afternoon Sunday read, uh, skimming over it by the fire. No, it's an encyclopedia. No, but it, it's definitely a, um, a worthy, worthy volume of... Of information. Yeah, I mean, you look through it, and so I, I would commend that to the listeners. And, and as the name implies, there is evidence that demands a verdict. Mm -hmm. And and there are, are facts that when, when you think of uh, a trial takes place, and there's the jury, and they're listening to the prosecution and the defense, they're looking for facts, and you need to weigh. And, and, and so anyways, hence the name of their book. But in here, what they do is they, they note the number of manuscripts that are available. And one thing they note is that we have cataloged 5,856 Greek manuscripts. We have, and then and they have, so I'm looking at a chart here that has a huge long list of Armenian, Coptic, Gothic, Ethiopian, Latin, Syriac, Georgian, Slavic, and, and more mm -hmm. languages that go back. They have the dates. So we have uh, Greek manuscripts from 130 earlier. So if John finished writing John around the year 90, let's say, you have a 40-year difference between some of these Greek manuscripts. In total, Greek and non-Greek manuscripts that we have is... 23,986 that have been um, looked at and studied. And there's, and I've heard that there's actually more that are just waiting to be studied. There's not enough scholars in the field. So it's a, it's a really important area to work. So you have almost 24,000 manuscripts. Yeah. Okay. So what you can do though, is they have another chart that compares the number of manuscripts we have of the Bible compared to other well-received, world-renowned writings, like Homer's Iliad and, and Plato and Caesar's Gaelic Wars and um, a lot of different um, ancient documents that have shaped historical understanding. And the, the closest document that rivals a number of manuscripts 
is this one by, uh, it's a history of Rome, and there's 473 manuscripts compared to the 24,000 manuscripts that yeah. we have. So, so, so the point I'm trying to make um, is we have very strong confidence, very strong evidence that the Bible that we have in our laps is the very Word of God, that sneaky Christians did not go in and change it and, and, and change it around. One, one thing I failed to mention is, so for example, um, even these ancient documents that I just mentioned, like the, the history of Rome, they also don't, they not only look at how many manuscripts we have, but what is the time frame between the oldest manuscript that we have and when this document was written. And the Bible blows away all other manuscript evidence of anything else that was written uh, because we have so many copies written so close to when it was written. So we just have this, this huge amount of actual yes. historical evidence yes. that this was the accepted scripture. Yeah. And one other point on that is, let's say we didn't have any of those manuscripts. There's these guys called the Church Fathers, and they're the next generation of believers who led the church in evangelism and discipleship for the next 100, 200 years. You can, we have all of their writings too, and you can pull out all the quotes and citations of scripture in their writings and rebuild the entire Bible. And then you can compare what how they were quoting scripture with the mm. manuscripts that we have, and it's the Bible. Yeah. So, so that that beginning foundation is to say our Old Testament and our New Testament are absolutely trustworthy. Sneaky Christians did not sneak in to change it. They didn't invent Jesus and make him a legend. Um, all those miracles, everything we read in there, it, that's in the original manuscript. Yeah. So, so here's when you said the beginning. Uh, what should people who aren't Christians think about the Bible? I think you can say it like this. You have to believe what the Bible says, but you don't have to believe what the Bible says. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what I mean is you have to agree, yes, the Bible says that. I may not agree with what it's claiming, but I have to agree that it said it, and it hasn't been changed by a Christian. So any notion of, well, Jesus was just a a wise teacher and a great sage, but actually didn't claim to be God in the flesh is, yeah. is false. You know, scripture clearly attests to that. So you have to say, yes, scripture says it, but I don't agree with it. Yeah. And then the burden of proof of why someone doesn't believe is on them for disagreeing with the Bible. Right. And in, you know, looking at what we're talking about today in the short amount of time that we have, we're not going to convince the skeptic. Um, no. The idea is to touch this subject a little bit, mostly for believers, so that you can delve into this subject a little bit more. Uh, I love that resource. I'll put it in the show notes on anchor.fm. Uh, Evidence that demands a verdict by Josh and Matt. Matt McDowell? His father? Sean. Sean, excuse me. Thank you. And Josh is the dad. That's right. Okay. I had, to, had it flipped up there. So, excuse me. Um, you know, looking at this subject, thinking about it today... Um, a lot of times you'll hear people talk about how do we know that the Bible is the Word of God? And mm -hmm. one of the answers to that question is that the Bible says that about itself. Now, there's going to be some objections to that argument, but but let me explain. Let me, okay. let me flesh yeah. it out. So one of the, the primary verses we go to, as you know well, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, mm -hmm. uh, all scripture 
is breathed out by God or God breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Well-known scripture that deals with uh, the issue of scripture itself and the issue of biblical inerrancy, uh, talking about how all scripture is God-breathed. It is the, the word of God, breathed out by God himself. Um, so many will say, and rightly so, the Bible attests to itself. But what's going to be the first objection someone's going to say to that? It's circular reasoning. Yeah, okay, I was, is this guess what? It's, a, it's an appeal to authority as itself. Yeah. You know, I, I recall sitting in a seminary class where the professor said, ultimately, any truth claim that is made at the end of the day is circular because it always has to appeal to some authority. And, and for the Christian, unashamedly, we point to Scripture as our authority. Um, we, we may not go this route, but, but one thing of no further authenticating fingerprint on Scripture, so you've got the transmission piece, so we can, we can believe it's a Bible. But we have these two testaments with a 400-year gap in between them. And in that 400-year gap, we have the whole issue of prophecy. And we can look at that in a minute. I know it's diverging from what you just mentioned, but but prophecy authenticates the person work mm. of Jesus Christ, and and that there is enough prophecies, enough prophecies, every prophecy fulfilled by Christ, uh, statistically, is is nearly improbable for it to have, have happened. But yeah, that could be something we talk about. No, different. but 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 yeah, you actually stole a little bit of my thunder because uh, yes. <laughs> The little thunder that I have in this world. Uh, Tim Keller actually talks about this in his book, Making Sense of God, which mm -hmm. I referenced in a previous episode that we, we talked about. I think it's a great book for the skeptic. Uh, if you're listening out there, or if you have a friend who is a skeptic, uh, Tim Keller's Making Sense of God is, is, a, is a great book that I think engages the skeptic very well. If I'm not skeptical, should I not read it? No, I, I would encourage you to read it, yes. even if you are not skeptical, because um, I think it will... It helped me better articulate things yeah. and better understand things. Um, but he talks about the very thing you were just mentioning, that ultimately at the end of the day, what we are basing our belief system upon is, is ultimately going to have an element of circular reasoning hmm. that, uh, that we trust in. He gives an example right here. He says, for example, reason depends on the faith that our cognitive senses, our eyes and our ears and our minds and memories are not tricking us. There is no non-circular way to establish that. Mm. We cannot test their reliability without using and therefore assuming their reliability. Mm. Um, yeah, so ultimately at the end of the day, the accusation that something is, is a circular argument is, is not necessarily discounting the truth of that argument. Mm -hmm. Scripture does attest to itself that it is the Word of God. Mm -hmm. That does not make it not the Word of God. That does not make that mm -hmm. argument invalid. Second mm -hmm. Timothy 3, 16, 17 um, are valid arguments in, mm -hmm. in examining the Scriptures themselves. Uh, as we said at the beginning, this is an incredibly deep subject. We're not going to touch every possible um, thing here that we can talk about today, every, every possible subject we can talk about regarding this. 
but scripture attests to itself. Now, um, another thing that Keller points out in a different book, uh, um, what is the name of the book? Oh, The Reason for God. With The Reason for God, yes. (laughs) The Reason for God. He addresses the skeptic from the the aspect of, of can we believe in scripture by appealing to the character of Christ, the person of Christ, and as a person engages with the story of Jesus in the Gospels, if you come to say, I, I do believe that Jesus is who he says he is, or I don't believe who he is, says he is, um, if you do accept him as he says he is, then you've got to also wrestle with the fact that Christ himself viewed the entirety of the Old Testament as scripture and as authoritative, mm-hmm. and as the inerrant word of God. Mm-hmm. Um, Matthew 5, uh, 17 and 18, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Mm-hmm. So Jesus accepted the scriptures of his time as the word of God. Uh, and I think one of the reasons that, that Keller kind of engages with people initially in the gospel, because he's part of it, there's a program out there that, that he deals with uh, skeptics, and they, they kind of begin in the book of Mark. It's a reading of the book of Mark to say, let's look at the claims of Jesus, who he says he is, because the coming of Christ, the work of Christ, is really the, the, the apex the climax of the story mm-hmm. of the Old Testament, everything that's leading up to that. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know where the Old Testament is headed, some of it is going to seem, a lot of it's going to seem really bizarre. Um, a friend of mine who just, you know, as a new believer, really, just the last couple of years came to know the Lord. A couple of years ago, a um, friend of our family, when she was just starting to read the Bible, she said, there's some crazy stuff in there. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of laughed because I mean she wasn't meaning that in an insulting way, but if a person is reading the scriptures for the first time and they start, and they start going through Leviticus and Numbers and, and Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, there's some stuff that is just completely off the radar screen of the the modern contemporary thinker. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so there's cultural issues going on. There's there's linguistics issues happening. There's all these different things happening, mm-hmm. and if you don't have a proper proper biblical framework for understanding and interpreting Scripture, it's you're going to be like, what in the world's going on here? Yeah. Why? What was this this little thing that took place? So talk about that just a little bit. Uh, the the importance of understanding Scripture in context in order to be able to. Because um, so many of the common objections against Scripture, so many of the of the the mud, so much of the mud that gets thrown against the Bible, has to do with things. At least from what I hear, that it's just. But you're not interpreting that correctly. Uh, case in point. Okay, I'll give an example. I know I asked you a question, but I'm gonna I'm gonna give it one more point of clarification here. Um, so one of the things that gets thrown out all the time is. Let's take the issue of gay marriage. They'll say, you know, well, Christians are going to rail against gay marriage, but yet they'll eat shellfish. They'll eat shrimp or they'll eat lobster when the Bible says not to do that. So this, this passage over here in, in the Old Testament where 
Christians were not supposed to, you know, or the, not Christians, but the, the Israelites were not supposed to eat shellfish. Um, you're not following that, but yet you're going to enforce this, this rule about, about homosexual behavior. Um, flesh that out a little bit for me. Yeah, so you, where the conversation is shifting now is, now it's in the field of what's called hermeneutics. Yes. Or biblical interpretation. Yeah, and I apologize for pushing this too fast in that direction, but trying to, to give us as much of an overview on the subject. Yeah. We've talked about the the transmission of Scripture, the textual historical criticism of yeah. Scripture, yeah. but moving into the Bible itself, we've established we're going to say, yes, we believe this to be the Bible. We believe it to be true. Mm-hmm. Now, how do we understand it? Yeah. And and how does that play into the argument? Well, the the string you just pulled is what I'm in school for right now. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to I'm going to um it, 2 Peter 1 Peter so this is Peter says knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. A couple things of note in that passage to answer your question initially. When he says no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, some people might hear that word prophecy and exclusively and wrongly limit that that term to even something I said earlier about Jesus fulfilling prophecy. When it says no prophecy of scripture, it's talking about the entirety writing of the Old Testament. So just think Old Testament. No, no words of the Old Testament came from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. So in other words, this book that we have called the Bible is, has been penned by human authors as God by his spirit moved them. So in some cases, in some of the prophets like um, Isaiah, thus saith the Lord, there's dictation taking place. God told them what to write. But others, like when you quoted uh, 2 Timothy there, about uh, Scripture being inspired or God-breathed, because inspired is, we tend to think that someone is struck with a moment of genius and can write a song or they're, mm-hmm. oh, they're inspired. That's that's not what it means. It means that God is, is moving by his Spirit through, say, Peter, so that when Peter finishes 2 Peter, it's exactly what Peter wanted to write. It's Peter's voice, Peter's vocabulary, but it's exactly what the Holy Spirit, what God wanted him to write. Yeah. So, the Bible is God's word. Now, the thing is, I believe and will contend that the Bible teaches us how to read the Bible. Jesus teaches us how to read the Bible. And the fundamental problem that we have as American Westerners assuming, or anyone else who's listening to this, Mm -hmm. is we're so far removed is that we read and interpret the Bible on our own terms, with our own agenda, and we foist our own perspective and ideas and ideologies onto the text. That's wrong. Mm -hmm. The Bible sets the terms, sets the agenda, introduces the themes and the topics, and then, and, and in doing so, What scripture is, is scripture is God's divine interpretation of God's own acts in history. Mm -hmm. So God's acts, this is interesting to think about, are are never self-interpreting. 
God acts in, in history, and then he explains his action in history. So, so uh, that's why the Bible itself is so essential and critical. So now to the gay marriage and lobster conversation. Yeah. It's an odd way to put those <laughs> two together. Like I'm not podcast. trying to be insensitive. That's a great podcast title, Gay Marriage and Lobster. Yeah. Um, and I'm not trying to be insensitive or, or, or so we'll take it, take any, I mean, whatever topic. The Bible is telling a single story that points to, is fulfilled by, and culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the Bible is, is something Tim Keller said, the Bible is not primarily about you and what you should do, it's about God and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. If it's a story, which it is, how is God telling his story? God unfolds his story primarily demarcated by six divine covenants. These marriage-like relationships that he enters in with people across the pages of scripture. So when you watch any story, or if uh, I love Lord of the Rings. So let's say you open up, you you put the DVD in or Blu-ray, and you go to the chapter menu, and you can see that you have these different chapters, these different sections of the story. That's what the books of the Bible are like. So the confusion comes of understanding how does God's words to the nation of Israel through the man Moses Mm -hmm. relate to God's words to the church through the God-man, Jesus Christ. And what you mentioned is a flattening of Scripture that doesn't pay attention to the changes and contours of the text and flattens everything and says, well, it says this here and this here, that's the same, lobsters, uh, sexual morality, can't put those together. Yeah. Well, you're, 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 it's one story, but you're in completely different chapters. A lot has changed since then. So you, those, it's, you actually don't have grounds to make that apples to apples comparison between these two. You're in two completely different eras of the unfolding of biblical history. Yeah. More can be said, but that's all that I'll say right now. No, that's great, Dave. Uh, yeah, you're highlighting a very just a very important point it's understanding scripture in its context of, yeah. of where the story is taking place mm-hmm. and, and another i think important thing to realize is there's I've, you hear the question all the time do you believe do you believe the bible is literal do you literally yes. believe the bible yeah and I, i've heard a response to that one of my seminary professors dr derek thomas who, who speaks for ligonier ministries and and also is a pastor out in south carolina he talks about you believe it literally according to the type of literature that has been written in that section of scripture. So narrative gets interpreted as narrative. Uh, poetic gets interpreted as poetic. Um, y- you have things that are descriptive in scripture and prescriptive in, in scripture. And Descriptive meaning this is what happened, prescriptive this is what you ought to do. Right, exactly. And, and so confusion of the two can really throw people for a loop. Um, take, for instance, polygamy in marriage. Um, it has been oftentimes argued that the Bible condones slash endorses polygamy. When, in fact, if you, if you read the narrative of Scripture, the Bible isn't condoning it. It's describing what is happening happening at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, a good, another pastor one time made the point, if you read the story of, of Genesis, 
uh, that all of the men that had multiple wives are having a horrible time. <laughs> Their lives are in chaos. There's, there's a lot of bad stuff going on because they're not following. Now, because the Bible doesn't immediately just jump in and condemn that, doesn't mean that it's right. It's describing the story of what is happening. Well, let me jump in there. So yeah, we when we read the Bible, we read it literally with respect to the literary genre. Exactly. And so as with all literature, there's rules that accord with what you're reading. And so you have to play by those rules. God's telling a story. He repeats himself a lot, but he doesn't need to. How often does God need to say something that shouldn't, that he shouldn't have to repeat himself? <laughs> so in Genesis 2, when a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, um, you have a one flesh marriage taking place there. So then the next chapter, when Lamech multiplies wives and murders a guy, we're already alerted to the fact that this guy is not living in accord with what God said. Yeah. Fast forward to Deuteronomy, he tells kings not to multiply wives for themselves. So there's supposed to be one woman, one woman, a one woman man. So then when we get into Joshua, Judges, um, Samuel, Kings, and all of that says take the polygamy taking place, even King David, it's wrong. God already told them in Deuteronomy not to do that. So they're living, whether you want to call it, it's their blind spot because they were culturally accommodating, doing what people did around them. But God had already condemned that action. So when the narrative describes what took place, as Western readers, we read with short minds or short eyes. Wait a second. He has another wife named Abigail? That's not right. Why doesn't God condemn that right there on the spot? Mm-hmm. He already did. Yeah. We have to read with a long mind. We we read those passages with Deuteronomy glasses on, and we're interpreting it through those lenses. Then next, when you get to the prophets, the prophets provide prophetic commentary on those events that you just read, and they're just slamming them for all of their sexual morality and sin. So, But that requires seeing how books function in relationship with each other on a large level, yeah. which is... which. Uh, we don't read that way, and it's a. But that's how the Bible demands to be read. Yeah, it, when you when you plane everything down uh, to where the Bible becomes this kind of, for lack of a better term, you know, homogenous, milky substance that that you know, there's no distinguishing between one section and another. You're going to end up doing what they do with gay marriage and lobster. You're going to say, oh, it says this over here and it says this over here. You're hypocrites because right. you're inconsistent. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember early on in like in my Christian days, um, maybe maybe even pre-Christian days, depending on what was going on in my life at that time, that, you know, I, I really didn't have any understanding of how to read the Bible. So this is how I read it. I flipped open a book and just said, oh, whatever it lands on today is yeah. what I'm going to read. Well, you... Uh, I had that you're just poking me with different things because I love that you're saying that. So, two things. You love that I'm saying that? You think that's the way I should read I it? I love that you say it because I don't like that at all. Um, I remember being taught early on, the Bible is a divine library. What do you do in a library? You walk down different aisles and you kind of take this book, you yeah. take that book. and And so the concept of the Bible being... A library of 66 different books and just depending upon the day you can i feel like some wisdom today i'm going to pull out some proverbs no i want a good story i'm going to read esther no the bible is beginning to end 
a meta narrative. There is an overarching story. So whether you, so, take the Star Wars saga, take Lord of the Rings, take um, Downton Abbey. You have these long involved. I'm trying to. I'm trying to be relevant. Oh boy, are you ever? Yeah. So you think of these long involved stories that. Uh, so Star Wars is the Luke Skywalker saga. Uh, Lord of the Rings is about Frodo taking the ring to Mount Doom. Spoiler alert, sorry. But you have all of these little side stories that that take tens of pages or you know movie time that eventually contribute to the overarching full story. Mm. So 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 picking up and choosing and reading the Bible as a divine library rather than a meta narrative rather reading it as a story that it is, influences our mental furniture. It rearranges the room so it's not decorated and organized the way God wants it to be. But if we read it from front to back, there's an order to it in a way that God is telling his story. So, so yes, that's one of the reasons why God gifts the church with, with teachers. But, but another thing related to that, so meta narrative, read it from start to cover, and then once you get the story, it's okay to jump around because you can say, oh, I'm reading Esther. How is Esther contributing to the overall story of Christ? How is it moving from one text to the next? But I have a book on my shelf called The Hermeneutical Spiral, and I think it's a really good picture. So again, that word hermeneutics means interpreting scripture. And this author is is saying that really with hermeneutics, it is a spiral. You, you, you read it, and then you reread it and then you reread it and it's like walking down a a trail here in the gorge by where we live you, you walk down and you see a beautiful waterfall and you're mesmerized by that and it just captivates your attention and it's all that you see you come back a month later and you walk down it again and, and now you're beginning to see some flowers and, mm-hmm. and some trees that are there you walk down it again and then you're beginning to see some nuance in the landscape and so the point of a hermeneutical spiral is you read and reread to let God teach you how to read and shape and rearrange your mental furniture so that you can make sense of the story. So let me let me question you on something right there. You said it's a meta narrative. It's meant to be read from beginning to end. And I, maybe you're saying something I don't think you're saying, but I, I, maybe I'm going to take a little bit different take on it. Okay. Yeah. So I understand the meta narrative yeah. from beginning to end. Does that mean an unbeliever being introduced to Scripture? has to start in Genesis. No. Be, okay. Okay, I see what you're saying. Because let me clarify. I think different parts of Scripture can connect with the understanding and worldview of different people in different cultures in a way that helps them unlock. It's the doorway into the meta narrative. So long as whatever door they enter in takes them to the beginning and takes them to the end. And I'm sitting here gesticulating with my hand, so I'm, uh-huh. you know, making... People people listening can't see this, but I, case in point, I, I think um, the approach of saying for a modern audience that maybe in our Western world has this concept of, of Jesus as a moral teacher... Um, that beginning with the gospel narratives with them to say, well, then let's look at the central figure of Christianity. Let's look at Jesus in his own words. And then let's, let's backtrack to the God 
of all creation who sent his son, Jesus Christ, working your way up then to the coming of Christ and then moving your way to the end of the story in the revelation that John wrote. Um, another example, there, there are cultures out there that for whom uh, the book of Job has been a tremendous point of connection for them. They've, they've, they've come to read that story, and it's connecting them to the meta-narrative that allows them, with proper guidance from, say, a missionary or uh, another believer, to connect them to the beginning of the story and the end of the story, to, to see it for what it is. Um, you take the organization like New Tribes Missions. They're now called Ethnos 360. They're a new organization, but they've been around for a long time doing phenomenal work reaching unreached people groups. Now, most of the time, they are going to people groups that have no problem believing in the supernatural. And even if they are a polytheistic people, ultimately, at the end of the day, these, these polytheistic people believe that there is an ultimate creator God that is supreme to all else. So for them, um, their approach has often been the... Um, the narrative from the beginning in the form of stories. They, they, they show these types of Christ. They show the creation of the world, the fall of man, the types of Christ that lead up to, and then presenting the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of all of those. So I do believe there can be different approaches that are taken, and it's going to be based upon someone understanding. I mean, what Paul did. We, we go back to this every week just about uh, Acts 17. Um, revealing to finding that point of connection and and proclaiming the unknown god to the men of athens in his discourse you're saying this i'm sitting here i'm nodding and i would say i see you nodding i say yes with qualification qualify this brother the qualification is that whether it's job or john is an entry point for a culture the people doing the work there must as soon as possible get the biblical story in as soon as possible. Um, all scripture is inspired. So going back to the second Timothy, which is able to make you wise for salvation. Now, some passages may contribute more clearly to the advancement of the gospel saga. That's how I understand the Bible to be. Mm-hmm. Gospel saga. So you may want to be strategic, but I think you get that foothold, but then you get to the whole story as soon as you as you can. Uh, I, I, I had a, a different professor who, who quipped, and I appreciated it, and I'll kind of change what he said, but a lot of Christians, so thinking about those of us here in the West, would be better served with an Old Testament with John and Romans than a New <laughs> Testament with Psalms and Proverbs. Yeah. And... Uh, we tend to make a folk canon. And a folk canon is that we have, well, you know, I don't really understand the prophets. They're weird. But I like uh, First, Second, and Third John. So we kind of have our favorite books and we just sort of make those a Bible within the Bible. Mm-hmm. And that's the danger. Um, we need to have the whole Bible because it's all inspired. There's not some passages that are level 7 inspired and some are level 10 inspired. They're all breathed out and they're all contribute to to ourselves, our understanding of making us wise for salvation, rather. Yes, and I, I appreciate that qualification. It is not by any means diminishing uh, the authority and inerrancy of Scripture and the fact that, like you said, that all of it is inspired from beginning 
to end. It is not all equally understandable in terms of the the interpretive difficulties one may one may encounter. Um, I I would venture to say that mm-hmm. if you are going to start with somebody in Gresham, Oregon, uh, who has never read the Bible before and who is not a believer, you're not. Are you going to go to Leviticus? Probably Numbers. <laughs> numbers. Well, yeah. I mean, I think you know John is a great start. Yeah. And and we read those. The beauty, the beauty of of God's wisdom and the illuminating power of His Spirit is that the stuff we're talking about, talking about the gospel is easy enough. Is is um, well, I was going to say easy enough for you know a three or four year old to understand, but actually. I'm actually thinking about that now. What I was going to say was, it's, it's yeah. you know that that cliche of, it's easy enough for a child to understand, and yet the greatest minds can exhaust their lifetime thinking about the word and never plumb its depths and riches. So that, that's the kind of point I'm getting to. Mm. Uh, I was just sidetracked there myself for a moment thinking about how it's easy enough to understand for a three year old. That's only because the Holy Spirit illuminates the text. Uh, yes, uh, and I haven't ever heard anyone talk about that before. Yeah, uh, but that is a different. Well, actually, so illumination of the text, right? We're talking about Corinthians that um, to spiritually discern what the Bible says requires the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We don't come to the text, read it, and discover God. God reveals himself to us by his Spirit in his text. So it's revelation, mm-hmm. not us ascending to him. So we are beggars and at his mercy to help us understand. It's not that someone who doesn't have the Holy Spirit can't read and make sense of the syntax and grammar. They can but the spiritual truth, the love and affection and treasuring of Christ yeah. only is by the Spirit. And ultimately, at the end of the day, in the, in the conversation that we're having, there there is that element of faith and humility in approaching the Scripture. Mm-hmm. I, I'm one to believe that all belief systems, even if you consider yourself an unbeliever, ha- is a combination of both reason and faith. You, at the end of the day, have, have examined evidence and you are putting your quote-unquote faith in something which is circularly proven. Proven. I, I didn't articulate that very well. But is it, you, you ultimately, at the end of the day, have to root your faith, your belief in something, even if you're claiming it's unbelief, yes. in something that's circular yes. in, its, in its logic. Scripture, there, there's proofs. We've talked about that at the beginning. We've talked about the textual evidence, the, the transmission of Scripture that we have. But also there is the element of, of faith in this, the belief that this is the revelation of the God of all the universe, of the God of the Bible. I humble myself before this text. And even the parts that I find troubling, difficult to read, potentially distasteful, um, I have to humble myself before that and say, you know, even if I don't see a good reason for this, that doesn't mean there isn't one. And uh, yeah, and ultimately there's there's still parts of scripture where I, I ultimately just don't know, you know. Uh, I can't give the, the answer that's going to necessarily satisfy every critic, every skeptic that's out there. But uh, I do trust that maybe one day I will understand it and maybe one day in heaven. You know, the new heavens and the new earth. Yeah, we're, I mean, it's theological humility. We're all in process. So, I mean, you know, we, we close our episodes with grow, 
in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ from the end of Second Peter. And that's what we're commanded to do. Every believer is commanded to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. So it's a greater appropriation of the gospel from all of the Bible. Yeah. But, you know, one thing I appreciate you said about our faith, I, I think one thing early on for me that was a frustration, I don't even know where it came from early on in terms of my conversion, was the notion of blind faith. And, and uh, realizing that we as believers have a reasoned faith. Mm-hmm. We have a reasonable faith. We have an intelligent faith. And that's important. Uh, there, there's people who um, are, are uh, full of the Holy Spirit, love the Lord, and, and don't care about textual transmission. And that's, that's fine. Yeah. That's fine. I, I, I do think that there is value in having some knowledge of this in the event that the Lord uses you to get into a conversation with somebody to share the gospel with them and mm-hmm. trust the text. But, but we have a, a reasoned, intelligent faith, and I appreciate that. So generation after generation, century after century, wave after wave of assault against Christ and God and his word, those waves always break upon and, and fail in debunking or disproving something with Scripture. Yeah. Uh, it, it weathers every storm and comes out stronger for it. So, you know, w- why should I believe the Bible? I think for me, it's the the witness, the 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 um, the witness that we have of textual transmission and trusting the text. It is then recognizing that which we didn't even get into is the of of prophecy, because the Old Testament was closed four hundred years prior to Christ, and then we have manuscripts from in between before Christ came so with the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible called the Septuagint we have these texts already where when Jesus comes on the scene and is fulfilling uh, uh, multiple multiple prophecies it's not that he was just fancifully orchestrating him that himself so that you can plug that in and mathematically figure out what are the odds of some person uh, fulfilling, 10 of these prophecies. Mm-hmm. So so that's another evidence for me, just kind of going on that witness stand, saying, okay, yeah, so I can trust that this is, the text is, was, is what it is. I can trust the prophecy. But then there's that internal testimony of the sheer literary brilliance and beauty of the Bible. And then that testimony of the Holy Spirit in us as well that confirms, as the Holy Spirit confirms that this is the word of God. And yeah. we... we um, we well, it's treasure, and it's sweeter to our mouths than honey from the honeycomb. You know, I, I agree a hundred percent. And and just thinking back to something a couple of weeks ago, we were at a Nine Marks Ministries conference, and uh, Mark Dever, pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, Washington D.C., uh, made a comment in one of the Q and A sessions uh, regarding Scripture, talking about this issue of of biblical inerrancy interpretation. Um, you could live a. I'm paraphrasing. You could live a thousand lifetimes and, and never write something as as just complex as as the Bible. Mm. Um, and the more I have, as Second Peter says, grown in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, you you begin to make connections in Scripture, not false connections. These aren't like oh I've come up with some kind of fanciful number system here to you know that predicts the end of the world. I'm talking about where you read something and say, wow, this thing, this passage that was written 
2,000 years prior to this other passage has this same theological implication. And then what gets you is when you go and you cross-reference it with some pastor or commentator, and yeah, that connection was seen. Mm-hmm. I'm not coming up with this in a vacuum. I'm, I, I, was, I made this connection by God's guidance and his Holy Spirit teaching me through his word, and he did the same thing for somebody else 400 years ago, a theologian. It, it, that is a tremendous affirmation mm. that, you know, this. if you were going to invent a religion, <laughs> the amount of complexity that would have had to go into forming something like that is, is just mind-boggling. It would be impossible. Yeah, when you think about some of the competing religions, it's they're authored by a single author. Mm-hmm. And... In a well, I don't I don't know the span of time necessarily that they that they they wrote in, but the Bible is uh, written by over forty different authors that were able to identify three different continents. You have slaves and statesmen. You've got kings um, over a oh thousand year period, about and. It's agreement. You you read it and there's a there's vox day, the voice of God. There's you you would expect you can read different authors mm-hmm. and you know that oh this this sounds like John Piper, this sounds like whoever, but when you read the Bible, it really just sounds like one voice, mm-hmm. which is remarkable evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in the text. Yeah, amazing book. That wraps up this episode here as we wrap up. Are. We have some new uh, intro and outro music. Do you like it, Dave? I have not heard it. <laughs> Are you just... I go back in and add it in later. Peeling our hair back with some sweet licks on the guitar? No, actually, it's a, it's like a little bit of a you know, gospel-y kind of feel. I'm, I'm, I've been enjoying it. Somebody said your other, your other theme music sounded way too serious. So I was like, okay, we'll see if we can fix that. This is a semi-intelligent, partially articulate podcast. <laughs> we try. We try our best. Yeah, to uh, highlight a few more times here, just just real quick as we we head out, a couple of resources people can look at. Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh and Sean McDowell. Yep. Uh, The Reason for God by Tim Keller and Making Sense of God by Tim Keller. And did you have another one you wanted to throw out there real quick, Dave? Well, no. There's a lot, but those are, those so are many. good, so good many start ones. Yeah. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Men of Athens podcast. Uh, don't he forget. He is Thomas Lawson. I am Thomas Lawson. I wanted to say one last plug. <laughs> Subscribe to us on iTunes or anchor.fm. You can download that app for free. Subscribe to the Men of Athens podcast. That'd so they're, scri- they're subscribing to the podcast, not subscribing to us. Well, of course, yes. Are you a, a strict subscriptionist? Uh, okay, never mind. We'll, yeah, we'll okay. cover that in another episode. Dave, per- uh, Dave Barry, you are Dave Barry. You take us out of here. Well, friends, thanks for uh, listening, joining us. And from Second Peter 3, we want to encourage us all to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. You've been listening to the Men of Athens podcast. If you have a question or comment that you would like us to address on a future episode, email us at questions at menofathens.com. 